Welcome back, everybody, for another fun edition of the Rolex Whiskey Passion Project. And today, I've got a gentleman who is pretty darn well-known for a good time and great whiskey palette and just, you know, all-around good guy in the whiskey industry. I'd like to introduce Mr. Dave Paradise. Davey, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing today? Thanks, Gavin. Pleasure to be here with you. I'm doing well. It's uh, got done golfing. I mean, he's living his best life, everybody. Exactly. It's Friday. I've already played around of golf. I've had a dram of some 30 year old whiskey. I've had uh, a donut. I mean, <laughs> this, day, this day is only just getting better and better and better. No, man. It's, and the weather's finally in California. We actually have sun. I mean, this is a good time. Yeah, sure is. It's fantastic. <laughs> this is good. Dave, um, you want to tell the audience briefly who you are, please, sir? For those who don't know. Yeah. My name is David Allardyce. I kind of created this alias a few years back. Actually, it was a friend that created it by accident. Dave Paradise is what I use for my social media and for DJing and stuff like that. I've been involved with the whiskey industry since around 2010. I became full-time brand ambassador with Glenn Fittick 2012. So it's just over 11 years now. On the side of that, DJ-wise, I've been playing with music since I was 17, got my first set of turntables, never stopped. I remember my dad coming in one time and, and asking me, are you still doing this? And I said, dad, I will never stop doing this. So it's one of those things that stays with you for life, I think. Um, so I, I, got a, I got a question on that because I used to do a lot of work in the nightclubs. Are you still on vinyl or do you jump around? No, I don't have any turntables anymore. I... Gave those up when I moved to the States. So I, okay. I grew up in Scotland, moved to the States back in 2005, sold the turntables, already had CDJs also. So I sold the turntables, mm -hmm. kept yeah. the CDJs, came to the States, and then just never got around to buying turntables because, you know, MP3s were such a thing then, CDs. Yeah. And it was yeah. so expensive to buy vinyl that uh, I just kind of made the switch to digital at that point. Well, it's crazy because I went to get my hair cut at the barber on Saturday and right next door is a vinyl store. So I went to talk to the guy. He said, dude, this hasn't been busier. It's like, it's packed. He's like, we've got this like resurgence of vinyl. People are playing vinyl at their houses now. And I'm like, he's like, dude, they're not playing it on, you know, an old school record player. They're using modern technology, but they're playing vinyl. I was like, dude, that's pretty cool. I mean, I got so many memories of like going to the local record library and, you know, checking out a few records and then taking it home and recording it to tape. And then returning it, I mean, that was, was, was a good part of the youth. Yeah, we used to do that with the radio, um, recording all the radio shows. Uh, Tim Westwood is, he had a hip-hop show back in the UK every Friday, Saturday night. But I was up in Seattle recently and did a, a, a set on turntables. So I bought a bunch of vinyl. I was, I was record shopping in Seattle. And some of the record store owners and workers were telling me that the pandemic kind of brought this resurgence of vinyl a little bit. And then, you know, all these record stores started popping up since then. So it seems to be catching um, some popularity again. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, let's get into the spine of whiskey. Walk, walk me through your first experiences with whiskey. Like, what was it? It doesn't matter how old you were. Most of us were all drinking underage. It is what it is. Yeah. But like, what was, what was whiskey to you the first time? Well, I'll give you a very quick snapshot of the very, very first time I drank whiskey. 
then the second time I drank whiskey, and then the first time I actually drank whiskey for real. So very, very briefly, when I was about probably sixty, probably seventeen years old, I drank some Bell's blended Scotch whiskey directly from the bottle in a friend's house. Just had a couple swigs. I hated it, and um, put that down and didn't touch that again for a while, and then. Actually, that, that's a lie. That was the second time. The first time was way before that, probably around 13 years old. I was in my mum and dad's uh, drinks cabinet. And at the time, the thing that we were, we didn't do it very much, but we did it once or twice, this thing called a suicide, where you basically take a plastic bottle and you dump just a little shot of a bunch of different spirits in there and then top it up with OJ. So... It's a quite a good name, suicide, right? Oh, I was, so South Africa was called a Long Island iced tea, seven yeah, spirits with it with a soda topper. Exactly, it's a homemade version of that, right? Not too far of a departure from a Long Island iced tea. Um, so there was some Balvenie double wood in that mixture, unbeknownst oi, to me, oi, oi. that that was a single malt, quite a precious whiskey, and and didn't know that I would later become uh, an employee of that company of Grants. But for real, the first time I drank Scotch whiskey and enjoyed it was when a friend of mine introduced me to Glenfiddich, 15-year-old in a pub in uh, Dallas called The Londoner. Used to be a regular there. Was handed a glass of 15-year-old. Didn't drink scotch at the time, but my friend Sharon, she was determined to get me to come and work with him. At the time, I was a web designer, DJing on the side at the weekend, and knew nothing about scotch, knew nothing about whiskey. Handed me the glass, I sipped it. I didn't hate it. I actually was surprised I enjoyed it. And uh, just went from there, and it was a very quick introduction. And then I got a, a, a lot of an interaction with uh, ambas- ambassadors and people in the whiskey industry, and it kind of fast tracked me into kind of learning more about single malt scotch. So that first, what year was that, Glenfiddich fifteen with her? That was a, that was two thousand ten, and I was thirty. Did, so when you were in that pub in two thousand and ten, they probably had a very Small whiskey collection. Yeah, I mean, no, they had a decent selection. It wasn't a whiskey bar by any means, but they still have a good selection. You know, they had from from Oban and Lagavulin all the way through Johnny Walker to uh, Glenfiddich, Glenlivet, McAllen, Balvenie. They had, and they had like not just the 12 year old, they had the 12, 15, 18 Glenfiddich, the same for Glenlivet, same for McAllen. They had a good selection, probably, I'd say. 20, 25 bottles, so not not a whiskey bar by any means, but a, a, a solid collection. So that was thir- that was thirteen years ago. Yeah. And now, how many bottles of whiskey do you think they have in that in that bar? I don't think they've expanded too much. Um, they've probably switched a few out, but I think they've been quite true to what they do. It's one of these bars that really has a tradition, has has a. a um, a real kind of local regular customer uh, fan base, if you like, uh-huh. and so they don't really mess with their their setup they, too much. If, if, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if it's not broken, they, don't fix it. They they did dabble with um, you know, with, with with different breweries for a long time, but as far as whiskey went, they were quite just regimented in what they what they offered. Great, yeah, bar, because, I mean. because because normally you know these bars, you know, fifteen twenty years ago had it, you know, they had the top. Whoever was, whoever was marketing well, those were the whiskeys behind the bar. Right. And now, because you know you can charge a, a little bit more for whiskey than you used to be able to, they're like, well, let's just bring more whiskey out. This is way easier to pour than going to go pop a bottle of wine at the guy's table. 
<laughs> like here it is. You want a forty-five dollar pour? Boom! Here it is. Took me one second of labor. You know. Yep. So, yep. so, so that you know, and the, and also just the education obviously has changed. So, okay, so back. So she gives you the Glenfiddich, the fish wound. Um, you like it. You start to meet people. Are you drinking? Are you did when that on that first dram? Did you go like, oh, I'm interested in trying a few more whiskeys? Or you're like, okay, cool, I like that. That's it. Check the box. Well, the thing was is that she was trying to recruit me to come and work for William Grant at the time. That's okay. That was my gateway, and she brought me under her wing. You know, helped me get some training. Got into the the industry as an employee for an agency. You know, doing liquor okay. store tastings, uh, and then she set me up with an account list in Dallas. So I would visit twenty bars once a month each. I would go and buy drams for people, Glenfiddich, Balvenie, with a certain budget. Like I said, I was fast-tracked into it. I got into it very quickly. I had a corporate card. I was buying drams for, for people. I was enjoying whiskey with people on a professional level, even though I was still very, very green, didn't really know the ins and outs, but I was gradually learning. And every time a brand ambassador came to town, shout out Freddie May and Nicholas Polacki, uh, Glenfiddich and Balvenie ambassadors respectively back Hello. then, I learned a lot from these guys early on. I would go and sit in the in the back of the room as they were presenting and I would take notes and I would study what they were saying and, and the stories and try to leave out the bad jokes, but um, you, you can't help but pick, pick some of those up, you know? And and actually, one of those bad jokes, actually is a good joke uh, from Freddie May, uh, helped me get the job of a full-time ambassador because I was asked in the interview to tell a joke on the spot and you know that's not that easy always. Yeah. I, I, you just made me so nervous. I don't think I could do it. What was the joke? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> okay, so what is the difference between a Scotsman and a coconut? Eventually, you'll get a drink out of a coconut. <laughs> I think I've heard that one in play before. Love yeah, you must have. That was uh, yeah. I, I borrowed that from Freddie there. I think I think Johnny the Scot used, used a similar one. Yeah, we all recycle the same jokes. I know, terrible. So you've been—I didn't realize that you've only been with them all these years. Yeah, I, I so, started with William Grant, and I've, I haven't worked for anyone else. And what did William Grant's? What did the landscape? You said you went to twenty bars. You went to this. Like that was just that was business for what the first four or five years, while it was so just kind of like nothing was happening. No, it was actually um, they had all the ambassador roles filled at that time and Sharon my friend who was the local district manager for William Grant so she sold the whole portfolio in the Dallas area she got me in through the agency I would have this account list like I said and, and eventually after about a year worked into actually doing tastings such as you know beyond just people coming up to a table I actually started to do classroom style tastings and after about a year and a half I had advanced my knowledge quite a lot. I'd become comfortable with public speaking, something that I was absolutely terrified of, like most people, right? And and I, which is why you know a lot of the things that I've learned throughout this journey, I know that if if I can do things like that, a lot of other people can too. So just when people say, "Oh, I don't know anything about whiskey," or "I don't know how to public speak," I'm like, I knew nothing in that world. So she helped me get started through the agency, and then a year and a half later. Freddie told me that he was moving on from his role from Glenfiddich into Monkey Shoulder, which was just launching uh -huh. at the time. You know, um, big product now in the whiskey world, but at the time it was just, it was brand new. 
in the US. He moved over to Monkey Shoulder. I applied for the Glenn Fittick job, went to New York for an interview, landed the job with my terrible joke. That was that I landed that job in February 2012 is when I started. So I was only with the agency just under two years. So Feb 2012, what's what's whiskey, the state of the industry like? It's it, if I remember correctly, I was still doing nightclubs and restaurants. It was pretty calm. I mean, it, it, it was nothing exciting. Just there was no. whiskey. Yeah, I agree. Well, it was it was it was quite dusty. It was quite back of the Irish pub, back of the British pub, doing a tasting in a private room. It, it, it's, it's changed so much. I would say um, cocktails were really rudimentary were not really a thing no they were doing rum they were doing mojitos right they were doing if you ask for an old-fashioned the bartender looked at you like dude that's gonna take me like five minutes to make like i'm not doing that even even 10 years ago unless you were in a a select few bars in the major major cities in the world cocktails were 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 not were just starting to become a thing again Mm -hmm. and so single malt scotch whiskey cocktails obviously were way behind that that trend so i remember going to the first tasting it was freddie may that was hosting it he had a kilt on you know it was the tasting of glenferic 12 15 18 it was some basic nibbles some appetizers three drams and it it was all very sort of well put together but not a lot of bells and whistles there was no expensive high-end whiskeys it was all very you know quite accessible and and now we if if we do a tasting with twelve, fifteen, and eighteen, we're, we're we're like, why would we do that? We we always have to throw in something in 21, 23, 30 year old, something impressive, right? Well, it's like well, you were right there when it was happening. I mean, if you think about twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, like there really was, it was just pretty basic. You know, you was with the it was pretty basic. There was no need for more. Whatever was out there was okay. It was it was just it was enough. And then I noticed. You know, I probably noticed around 2017 something was happening. Like brands were releasing older age statements that generally would sit at, you know, Total Wine, BevMo, et cetera, until the cows come home. And people were starting to nibble at them. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, like I remember seeing, you know, 21s and, and 30s all of a sudden popping up. And you're like, who spends $600 on a whiskey? You must be crazy. Yeah. I mean, the, if you want to go into the conversation of prices and how that's changed in the last decade, I mean, I remember <laughs> the Glenfiddich 30-year-old, which to me at the time was just such a unicorn. It was like, wow, 30-year-old. I mean, when I started, the first 15-year-old Glenfiddich that I tasted, I was 30 years old at that time. Yeah. And that bottle was retailing for $299. Now you have to add an extra 1000 on top of that to get that bottle. So, you know, if we all knew what we know... <laughs> Where the no. industry was going to go, you know, we'd all be real. Oh, we would have stocked up on those things. I mean, <laughs> you know, I started buying around then, around 2016, 2000, and I was buying Japanese whiskey. There really was, there was no, there, there was no excitement on Scotch. I think, um, you know, that it, McAllen probably ignited a little bit of excitement into the financial side and, and kind of opened the, opened the curtain. And then everyone came out with like, I mean, I remember going to the Ents. You know, at Mahesh and and Lauren would bust out bottles underneath the table with like hand handwritten, you know, pulled from cats, forty two year old Glenfiddich, forty eight year old, like it was there. It was just yep. like, wait, we can put and then and then the next year it was like it was like one of them, and then the following year, no, 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 this is a core line now. Now we have a you know a forty and fifty, like 
It's like, this is a core line. It's no longer handwritten on a label. Like this is in the market and uh, we can't keep up with, with, with the need. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that. I was just playing golf with Kieran from McAllen. Yeah. And we were, we were talking about how, you know, back in the days, we used to be able to get our hands on a lot more of these kind of cask strength, cask samples, you know, the unmarked bottles, what what we actually would call um, suitcase specials, you know, yeah. that you tur- you turn up to Vegas and you'd open the suitcase and you'd pull out a couple of these cast strength bottles and everyone's in awe because it's not an actual official release. So you know it's straight from the distillery, it's uncut and it's something rare, but it's getting harder and harder for us uh, folks that work at distilleries to get these bottles out of the, the 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 management of stock is a lot tighter, you know, more regulations and and you know, also Ian Miller doesn't doesn't work for us anymore, so he was able to procure a lot of that stuff. But I'm I'm counting on Struan to help me when I go to the distillery uh, next uh, in August. I'm hoping to pick up a few specials. Well, it was interesting because I remember years ago being at uh, one of the San Francisco whiskey shows, and Neil, who at that point was working for Belvini, he had one of he had a bottle under the counter. That was, you know, I, I don't know how it still works with employees that, you know, when you go visit there, you can get a few bottles, something was something like that, you know, and he had this bottle that ended up being like this show favorite amongst like some serious whiskey palettes. I'm like, dude, that's not even part of their collection. That's just yeah. like a handwritten thing that was a suitcase special. And that's what I everyone mean. was walking around talking about the suitcase special. And you're like, wait, brands told a lot of money to be here to like talk about their core line. Nobody gave a shit. They're like, no, how do we get that one? It's so true because unless it's ultra limited, people don't really care, right? Especially the people that are that money's no object, right? So they they want that experience. They want that ambassador to pull something out from underneath the table to to give them an experience that they cannot, that money can't buy. That is as purely as an access thing, right? And that's part of the allure. Of a brand I, mean, I, I remember doing it. Kieran came down to San Diego probably five years ago, six years ago now, and he did a tasting. And and Laird was there the week before doing a tasting. Kieran came down and he was tasting like the McAllen exceptional single cast, which was like a two hundred and forty dollar whiskey. You're like, wow, oh, they sent me this one. Let's pop that one open. You know. So okay, so let's go. Let's go back to the game here. So now we're 2015, 2016. What was the first signal for you? Something's up. Because you're like, you're in the mix. You're a brand new, you're like, you're in the game. What was like a a Batman sign that showed up in the sky that something was different? Well, speaking of popping things open, I just had to crack a little 26-year-old there. Um, sorry. I still, you know, I still, I still dream about the dinner that I couldn't make because I had to go to Vegas. Enjoy your 26-year-old. Well, listen, <laughs> I have all these bottles here waiting for you. So I next know, time when we meet up, uh, we'll have a nice little... Sampling. So you're talking about five, you're talking about like in the last six years or so? Yeah, you know, but you notice something like, you know, your first your first five, six years on the brand was, you know, you were doing a thing. And it was a thing and it was pretty, you know, routine. At, yeah. There, there's a tipping point where all of a sudden, like, somebody asks you, I don't know if it's on-premise or a private client, like, something changes where all of a sudden you see that demand is changing. Hmm. Good question. You know, because I, I remember like the accessibility stopped. Like around 17 or 18, 2017, 2018, all of a sudden it wasn't that easy to get top shelf whiskey. 
Yeah. As it had been. What obviously happens is the distillery, you know, with single malt Scotch whiskey in particular, there's only one distillery. So it's not like Guinness where they can just, in different countries and around the world, and satisfy demand. We only have as much capacity as the distillery has, and you can only create as, as many barrels as, as the liquid comes off the stills. So as popularity grows, I did a video on this not too long ago about the top 10 whiskey markets in the world. As different markets start to emerge and start to snap up more whiskey, even though the US is the number one market for most of these brands, pretty much all single malt brands, I would say, it becomes harder and harder for us to get the stock that we once could get. So our percentage of allocation often will fluctuate based on the needs of other markets, even though the US tends to get prioritized, uh, the priority will for a company will always lie with the, the the market that can get the biggest value per bottle, right? Mm-hmm. So if if Singapore can get Singapore, $50... Singapore, yeah. Singapore, for example, if you can get $50 a bottle in Singapore for a 12-year-old, but the US is only getting 40 that's going to affect where the stock goes, right? So that's a big, big piece of the puzzle. And, and what affects how much stock is available. So as the as the world becomes turned on to single malt more and more and more, the challenges become greater. But what you're seeing is over the last few years, all the major distilleries are ramping up um, production. So Glenfiddich opened a, a third still house. We've, we've, since I started, we have added, see, almost, I think about 40, 40 to 50% volume to our production capabilities and there's even more capacity available in the future there's more expansion uh, available there. there's more room for expansion so clearly the, the the signs are that the demand is there and it, the whiskey the people in charge at these whiskey companies think that that demand is not going anywhere soon so good news for for well, all of us in the industry well i mean the, a, a line that i use all the time you can't microwave 30 year old whiskey correct you know like it has to do its thing I'll so I think it. that, you know, I think that in hindsight, obviously, because the demand wasn't there, you know, there really wasn't a lot of, they didn't, they, they went 12, 16, 18, and that was good enough. Hey, leave mm-hmm. a couple of barrels back there for a little longer. Then this whole thing happens in the last, you know, half dozen years. And they're like, well, we're not going to make that mistake again. Right. Let's, uh, you know, when we lay down now, we're going to lay down a little bit more. Obviously, focus on the core, continue to do in- innovation. I mean, I think Fittig has done a great job on innovation. You know, I really, yeah. you know, if I, if I look at a brand that innovates with aged whiskey, I don't really know anyone that innovates at that level. You got 23, 26, 29, you know, like with innovation. Yeah. You know, most of the other single malt guys, you know, <laughs> no, no age statement, you know, five years. <laughs> it's a very it's a very good observation Gavin because we talk about this quite a lot you know we often talk about the fact that Glenfiddich and Balvenie is owned by William Grant and Sons which is family owned right and people often think well cool that's cute but ultimately who really, who really cares the reason it matters one of the main reasons it matters is and this is this is not just me saying this this is just the, the proof is out there there's 21, there's 23, there's 26, there's now 29 limited edition, there's a 30, 40, and a 50-year-old. These are available ongoing. So the difference is, being a family-owned company, they're looking long-term, longer-term, than the majority of companies. And not to say that other companies aren't laying down a lot of stock to age for the future, 
But the Grant family has been very astute in realising that this demand is, is not only not going away, but even if it goes away for a little bit, it comes back in cycles, right? And they understand the huge profit potential of aged whiskey. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's absolutely phenomenal. You can turn water, yeast and barley with time spent in oak into a bottle of whiskey that, that can fetch $50,000 and above. And if you're going to auction, you know the bottle numbers that oh, yeah. must get astronomical. <laughs> so yeah, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Sotheby's, Sotheby's keeps breaking the numbers. I mean, I think if I look right. at it, I'm like, my God, boys, you just like, this is insane now. It's, it's now like, I'm. who are these people buying it? But they're being bought. Legitimate, it's happening. But, you know, most people on the innovation tip, this, you know, you don't know what you're getting at the end. You know, when you do the, the water, the yeast, the barley, the barrel, you let it sit. You don't know what the end result is. So I think a lot of people might play chicken and pull out early because they're like, well, I don't you know. And this is good at, at, at eight years or 10 years. We don't, I, I, I don't know what it's going to be like at 23. You guys go the distance. Correct. I mean, well, the, 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 new, the new 29. I mean, you had no idea what that was. You know, like that's a, that's a, but, but the 26 and the 23, you know, like, I, like I enjoy the grand crew. I mean, yeah. you know, like that's the innovation of 26 year old whiskey. You know, it's not like, it's not like, hey, this is, you know, ready next week is what yeah. we did. The, the other thing on top of that is that, if you, for example, if your brand is part of a publicly traded company, profit, the profits have to hit this target to satisfy investors and whatnot, shareholders. So not to say that a privately independently held company isn't trying to hit a number. Of course they are. But they're also more likely to look at the, the much longer, further in the distance future. So whereas you might be able to say, well, hey, we have all this stock. We can sell it as 12-year-old now and hit this number and knock out the park. Yeah. But that might sacrifice your ability to have 30-year-old and 21-year-old and whatever else. So um, it's, it's been pretty interesting to see the the success of Glenfiddich and Balvenie grow from strength to strength and the fact that these aged whiskeys, they're not in short supply. I think financially you don't... It's, it's, it's well-priced. And, you know, my brother-in-law... He FaceTimed me yesterday. He was in Israel on a family vacation. He landed back this morning. He was out duty-free. He was running through with the FaceTiming me. And he came to the Belvani and there was the 15 Madeira. So like 120 bucks. I'm like, James, grab me one, please. I'll see you next week. We'll pop it open. I'm like, $120 for a 15. You know, you know, you talk about the Belvani 15-year-old single barrels you know, like for 150 bucks. And you're like, that doesn't... That you know, you guys have really kept your prices where you can get high quality whiskey at a great price. For the most part, now, I think there's some exceptions for sure. Of course, for everyone, definitely. Like, some of these brands are more exceptions than yeah, than, than less. How about that? <laughs> you know, because I'll go. You know, I if I look at a uh, you know a, a Glencinic thirty, a Belvaney thirty, obviously, then you know go Macallan thirty. And you notice a pretty significant jump in price in, in, those, in those level. And it's just because of whatever it is, you know, and it's, and it's okay. But like, it's 30 year old whiskey, like mother nature really took her time and made something beautiful in there. Absolutely. And, really? and you know, to, to the point about experimenting and innovating with older whiskeys, you know, we, we were together with Brian Kinsman, who is the master distiller for Glenfiddich. 
and we were launching the 29-year-old Yozakura, which is finished in these American oak barrels that used to hold a Japanese spirit called Awamori. And he said the original intention wasn't to make this a 29-year-old. It wasn't just, you know, someone that wrote this down on a deck in, a, in, a, in, a, in an office somewhere and said, hey, let's make a 29-year-old Awamori cast. No, they experimented with younger Glenfiddichs, um, and they didn't find that there was a much of an influence an influence from that Alamori cask at the younger ages. So that's why they started to notch it up and eventually they landed on a 29-year-old and they said, this is just this just the same. It just happened to be a sweet spot for this particular uh, experiment. So sometimes there's the, these things kind of are serendipitous and they're through trial and error. Well, I, I mean, I love it. Obviously, you know, love the products, love enjoying it. Dave, are there any experiences where as a person... You know, because you're pretty, you know, this, you're, you're like one and done. Found a great brand, got in there and, and having fun. Is there, are there experiences that you catch yourself, pinching yourself, going like, holy shit, I can't believe I'm doing this? A hundred percent, all the time. I mean, I made a post yesterday. <laughs> uh, it was a bit, uh, basically saying that, you know, I, I was actually pinching myself because I was just thinking to myself that I get to drink this expensive, rare delicious whiskey on a regular paid. right it's paid for i get to share it with other people i get to create experiences for them and i also get to do what is another passion of mine which is music djing and i get to incorporate and fuse the two together so yeah i'm pinching myself all the time that i'm able to do this because you know i'm not in an office i'm not i don't have to go to an office monday through friday i work from home i travel you know, it, it's it, the list goes on in terms of the, the the benefits of of being a brand ambassador, but not just being a brand ambassador in the whiskey industry. I think it, there's a special relationship within William Grant and Sons for between the, the organisation and brand ambassadors. We are left to our own devices to a certain extent, very autonomous. You kind of manage your own schedule, and I remember within the first six months of of being hired, Charlotte Voisey who is the, the global director for brand advocacy. So essentially she looks after the 100 brand ambassadors that we have around the world. And she told me, make this job your own. And I didn't understand, that didn't compute to me because for me in my life up until that point, I had only worked in jobs where you basically were told, hey, this is your role, this is what you do, I'll see you on Monday, right? And there was very little flexibility or room for, you know, creativity. Whereas this job was the complete opposite. And I was, I was stunned the first year and a half. I didn't get it. And then eventually I tried something. I tried to do a DJ event, doing cocktails with Glenfiddich and we fused the event with Milagro Tequila, which is another one of our brands. (laughs) And I thought the next time that someone heard about it on my monthly report, they're probably going to look at it and say, what are you doing? You should be in an Irish bar or a British pub you know, our steakhouse doing a whiskey tasting. But the reaction was different. It was actually very positive. And that led me down this path of really going and fusing the DJ in with the, the whiskey world. So very fortunate to to have that kind of a freedom and flexibility. And that, that's really down to the infrastructure within William Grant and Sons. It's, it's pretty unique, I think. Yeah, when I saw your post yesterday, you know, like my real world is grocery, you know. I travel the country, I put products in new stores, I work for great, I choose who I work for. And then the whole whiskey thing just like became a passion project. So I can be in any, you know, in any part of this country and be like, hey, is anybody here? And go have an amazing experience. 
and try whiskeys that I might not try in the regular whiskeys I might own in my own collection, but they're worth too much to open. You know, like it's not, you know, it's not reality that I can open multi thousand dollar bottles. I can own them, but I'm not opening them and get to try it. And I'm just always blown away of just what a great community it is and how there really are so many people that are just truly passionate about great whiskey. And I say that we're great whiskey, passionate about great whiskey. There's people that also just pound back shit and don't give us up. Those are different. <laughs> passionate about great whiskey. You know, it's pretty darn cool. It's amazing. And and I, if you had told me when I was a teenager or in my young 20s that, that I could make a living out of alcohol, and not only alcohol, but high-end, rare, and a product of the country that I'm from, I, I, I would have laughed at you. And I didn't think it was a possible thing to do. I didn't know that a brand ambassador role was a real thing. So all of this has been very, very, you know, you can't say anything else but blessed. You know, it's like, it's just been an amazing yeah. journey. Very lucky to have stumbled into it, you know, thanks to um, Sharon, really. And then all the people that have, have helped me along the way. But you're right, the, the community is, it keeps you going. It's, it keeps it exciting. It keeps it interesting. Um, of course, you do obviously meet some people along the way that are very geeky and, and yeah. maybe maybe want to focus too much on the details and, and kind of forget about the fact that whiskey is just it's a fun uh, you know product to, to enjoy but you know, overall it's been it's been great and I, I enjoy you know meeting people like yourselves and, and doing things like this podcast and, and well it's funny it's funny because you, you said bells in the beginning and it's like I mean I grew up we drank in South Africa you drank bells and J&B and yeah. if like anybody had a couple of extra bucks it was Johnny Walker Black and you, you, you know, that's what you drank. That's what you did. And, you know, to look at some of these pictures of me playing backgammon and on the beach, you know, and a bottle of bells on the side thinking like, who would have thought, you know, fast forward, you know, 30 odd years that I would actually have a substantial investment for a kid's college fund, get to do whatever I really want within reason in the whiskey world. There's no fucking way. Yeah, it's crazy. No, no way. And, I, and it, it is those pinch yourself moments where you're kind of like, this is pretty darn cool. I know. And, you and, know, and, 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 and respect for the whiskey, you know, like it's not, you know, like you're, you're talking earlier, like, you know, the barrel, the, every, like everything that happens is a special thing. It really is. And the end result and the, and the forethought and sometimes not so much forethought, you know, more of an afterthought. I wish I would have done more. It's it's pretty amazing the people in this industry. Like I spoke with Brian, you know, I was helping the guys at Block Bar, and they did the first um, Glenfiddich release, you know, on, as an NFT. And I remember talking to Brian and interviewing him, and he was like, "Who would have thought this would give you know as a business would give us another channel to sell whiskey? You know, normally you sold whiskey to you gave it to Dave. Dave went and sold it to a, a restaurant or a bar or a hotel." Uh, and a liquor store, and like that was really it. And if people came to visit you at the distillery, you sold a few more bottles. Now, fast forward, this was last year, 2022. He's like, you can ship online. Then now you have these NFTs as well. It's like it's just like there's there's so much, and, and there was duty free, of course, the whole time. There's just more channels to get more top of the line um, funnels to get people into enjoy whiskey. Absolutely, and. So not you know not everyone agrees with it. You know there was an article recently. It was essentially kind of 
suggesting that the whiskey industry was headed down a dangerous path with too much innovation and, and too many changes and, and this and that. Huh. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, we've changed a lot in the last 10 years and most of it's for the better. Now, depends what, what angle you're coming from. If you're a collector, you're going to say, well, the whiskey's too expensive now and it was cheaper back in the day and you could always get a good deal, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Well, well, you'd say the same if you're a real estate mogul. Exactly. More homes. You say that about everything. Everything. There's more. There's there's more people enjoying <laughs> it. The demand's higher. The price goes up. The, 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 the as we mentioned earlier, you can't just click your fingers and make twelve year old whiskey. There's no yeah. there's no fast track to that. There's no shortcut. So, um, yeah, there's there's amazing innovation. There's amazing changes in the industry. And, and it, the important thing is though, I do agree with the fact that it's a very traditional product at its core, and we should never forget that, and we should never let go of that. And, you know, when people go to Scotland and when they go to an experience that's centred around Scotch whiskey, they do expect an element of tradition to it. But there's absolutely plenty of room for innovation, make things a bit more cool, interesting, different, try new things, attract new people into the industry. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. Well, I don't know. I think like you, we're having fun. I don't think it's going anywhere. I'm grateful to have whiskey as part of my life. I'm grateful. I like. I'm a. I'm a foodie. You know. I love great food. Love great whiskey. And and I see the great whiskeys I get to enjoy. Kind of like your. You know. Your post yet today. It's like I'm grateful that I get to do those things and enjoy it. I'm more grateful for the people I get to hang out with. You know. For no. You know. I. You know. For no reason other than just to enjoy great whiskey. There's no agenda. There's no nothing. It's like, let's just have a drink and have fun. Yeah, and I remember. You know, if you think about your younger days when you would go for a beer, you, you weren't sitting around talking about the beer. You, you would probably have the same beer six times. You know, nowadays, if I go into a bar and I order a beer, if I go for another one, I'm probably going to look at getting something different. It's the same with Scotch. You know, people always ask us, especially people, you know, they look at us as people that, in the industry that work for brands. They say, oh, well, when you're not drinking Glenfiddich, what are you drinking? And the number one answer, which is 100% true for me, is something I haven't tried yet. Yeah, and and that's that's the fun of it, right? There's so much out there. There's there's so many interesting, different things coming out every every you know every week, every month now. And I think what makes I feel the superpower that I have is we know that what someone else might not know is good whiskey because they're just like an average drinker is like, oh, I'm just going to go in and order you know a fitting twelve, fifteen, or eighteen. And you and I look at the whiskey list and you're like. Ooh, look at that one. Right. You know, like, and you look up at the thing and it's like the bottle's almost full, you know, because no one's like, you know, we will leave the, the, the securities and confines to go because we know, you know, I was, I was at a bar in Minneapolis on Tuesday night and they had a 28-year-old Glendronic sitting there and the guy was like, oh, it's $45 for two ounces. I'm like, well, I'll finish the bottle. Thank you very much, sir. And he looked at me like, whoa, you're spending $45? I'm like, Glendronic 28 year, of course I am. (laughs) Not even a thought, but you know, truly blessed for the cool shit that we get to do. I do look forward to hanging out with you soon. Now that the weather's nice, no, I'm kidding. Now, I mean, I've still got a couple of more trips. Um, We will intersect for sure. I really can't thank you enough, though, for taking the time. Is there any, like, I know you've had lots of crazy moments, not crazy, amazing moments. Is there any moment where you just want to pinch yourself, like, I was sitting with Brian Kinsman on a yacht. I don't know. I'm making that up. Yeah. Where you're like, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I've, I've met, I'm not really big into celebrities, right? 
But I have met three really high-profile celebrities that I fully respect. And if I were to have picked three, these might not have been the exact top three, but they would have been maybe top ten. And so, and this is all connected to Glenn Fittick. I've met Michael Jordan, Sugar San, gave him a bottle, which actually he didn't take home with him, but that's a, that's another story. Um, <laughs> He's got his tequila. Yeah, right. And, and then I met um, Anthony Bourdain when he was a partner with Balvenie. Uh, you know, that was incredible. I got a signed uh, Glenn Cairn glass from him. And the, my favourite one was is drinking Glenn Fittick's 30-year-old with Harrison Ford in a bar uh, in Fort Worth, Texas. And he walked into the bar. It's kind of a long story, but I'll try and brief, make it brief. He walked into the bar right past me and the 10, 12 other bartenders that I was with, I was hosting this uh, Soul Train party at a bar crawl. Oh. We, we took a, a disco bus from Dallas to Fort Worth. This was the last bar. We were downstairs in their speakeasy. We had the DJ set up, but no one knew this yet. So anyway, we're finishing up upstairs. We're about to take everyone downstairs. Harrison Ford walks in. My colleague Shandell elbows me and says, did you see what, who just walked in? I said, yeah. She says, go and buy him a 30-year-old. I was like, nah, I'm just I'm just going to leave him alone. She's not going to do it. So she convinced me. Uh, the bartender sent two Glenfiddich 30s to the end of the bar where they were standing, him and his friend. I walk over. We all grab a glass. We cheers. I introduce myself. Tell them I work for Glenfiddich. Just wanted to share a dram with them. And they, they really enjoyed it. They were looking at the whiskey collection. You could tell they were in trying to find a nice whiskey. So they really appreciated it. We had a chat. And I had this crazy outfit that was the Soul Train. <laughs> it was it, it was kind of it looked like a a, a a Migos reject, right? If you know who Migos are, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And I had this black and Wait, white. You had, you had, you had, but you had your shirt on, right? I had, I had a <laughs> I had a pink t shirt. It was tons of patterns on it. I had a black and white Nike tracksuit that had floral patterns on it. I had purple suede boots, gold chains, yellow glasses. And a wig, right? So, you know, I don't know if that would have been considered PC these days. Anyway, I go up to him and I completely forget that I'm dressed up at this point because it's been all day. And we're chatting. I said, what are you guys in town for? He says, oh, we're flying helicopters tomorrow. I was like, oh, you better calm down in the whiskey then. So he leans into me and he says, by the way, thanks for the thanks for the whiskey. Really nice. He says, what are you dressed up as? And then the, the, that, that was the moment where I realized, like, oh, wow, I totally forgot that I'm dressed up for this Soul Train thing. And I, I burst out laughing. I says, oh, you know, we're doing this Soul Train party. You're welcome to join us. And he leans in again. And he says, you know, you're only one step away from blackface. <laughs> I was, like, so embarrassed. I was, like, I, I wasn't. But it was just funny that I met, like, this, you know, megastar Harrison Ford, Han Solo, Indiana Jones. And uh, that was his. That was my lasting memory of my interaction with him. Anyway, he obviously was having a laugh, and he came down to the party five ten minutes later, and they had a quick look around, and off he went. Didn't get a picture with him, unfortunately, but that was one of one of the bad moments. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. David, do you want to tell people how to follow you on social media or any other things, your DJ stuff? YouTube, I've got some live stream videos that I've done. Uh, it's Whiskey Sounds Good. Uh, whiskey spelt without the E. So Whiskey Sounds Good on YouTube. Whiskey Sounds Good on Instagram. Yeah, you can pretty much find me through Whiskey Sounds Good or Dave Paradise across the board. 
Um, but yeah, that's that, that's the that's the main channels I'm using: YouTube, Instagram, posting stuff about whiskey, posting stuff about music, fusing the two together, having fun with it. There we go. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I really do. I look forward to hanging out with you. I want to thank the listeners for listening. Uh, guys, I'm just going to keep bringing people to the show that are passing and we have fun with whiskey. So have a great time and I will talk to everybody soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye.